This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at Upcase.com. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm Chad Pytel, and with me today is Adish Pandit, the managing director of Thoughtbot San Francisco and host of our newest podcast, Reboot. Adish, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Chad. Tell us about Reboot. Uh, Reboot is a podcast that just got started. We have one episode up, and it's about people who are going through big career transitions like I did. It's an interview format. It's me talking to other people who've gone through a lot of different changes, and it's a fun time. And we're doing this podcast sort of as a season, right? Yeah, we're doing it as a season. We're doing, we haven't really specified the number of episodes we're going to do, but somewhere in the range of 10 to 15, depending on the guests that we get. We don't want to make it a, a long-term thing. We want to sort of put it out in the world and see how it does and then reevaluate. It's a lot like Serial in that way, uh, but really only in that way. Yeah. <laughs> the first episode is available now at rebootshow.fm slash one and on iTunes. So... Adish, uh, tell me about yourself. How did you first get into Rails? So that's a sort of convoluted story. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I had prefaced it by saying it wasn't the plan. None of this was the plan. I actually was a chemist before, uh, which is sort of the securitist route that I took to, to get to here. I'm from the Michigan, Detroit area. My brother and my dad are both automotive engineers. You know, grew up fixing the car and, and changing the oil. But... I kind of wanted to be the rebel, and, and, and so I went into science. So <laughs> science was sort of the, the different thing in the Detroit area. If you weren't going to be an automotive engineer, it wasn't really clear how you were going to get a job. So I really loved science and chemistry, and uh, I was at the University of Michigan. I had a great time there. I just loved it. I loved science, and, and so I went on and did a graduate degree in science at the University of Chicago. Studied for a long time, finished my PhD, defended it. But along the way, I realized I didn't really want to be an academic either. Uh, I was lucky enough to have an amazing advisor who was excellent at his job. And I kind of looked at him and said, I don't know that I'll ever be that good at that job. Um, it's also an administrative job uh, more than it is a science job, as I guess all jobs are, even within our company. The more you move ahead in leadership, the, the less you do the thing that you started off doing. Mike Burns in, in Sweden likes to say that it's just a different job. You know, He does the same job I do in, in our Stockholm office, and it's just a different type of job. So looking at the, at the world of academic science, uh, it's a really tough road. Uh, you're dependent upon government funding, the NSA, National Science Foundation, and uh, National Institutes of Health fund most of the academic science in the country. And if the country goes through tough times, as it has in the past six years, the government cuts a lot of that funding. And science funding drops off. And so your input for the academic economy is drastically reduced. So you take in grant money as a laboratory and you do your research and then you output papers and that's the machine that you're supposed to run. But it's, it's a hard life. It was hard even back in 2006 when I finished. So I started looking elsewhere. I started looking at other jobs and thinking about what else there was in the world. I'm curious, why did you go to graduate school in the first place? I think there's a joke in graduate school that's not very good, which... <laughs> says that, you know, you, you go to graduate school because you don't really have any other idea what you should be doing. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I was that different. I really enjoyed science. I liked the people more than anything. 
they're all kind of oddballs, super smart, interesting, collaborative, great people. And there's something to be said for working on really fundamental scientific problems. You know, you can really get excited by working on curing cancer or figuring out how the cell moves or, in my case, understanding kind of the basic physics of biomolecules. Um, Those are kind of interesting academic pursuits and they're interesting for their own right. What happened with me and some other folks in my cohort was that at some point you realize you're not really sure what it means. What does it mean to the world? Like, Are you actually mm-hmm. doing anything that is impacting the world? And it's hard to know. And for some people like me, that became unsatisfying. I feel like I have or I have this perception that in the scientific industry with certain topics or areas of expertise, your job prospects, if you only have an undergraduate degree, are very limited. And even if you get a job in one of those limited capacities, your potential for advancement within that is pretty limited. Yeah, it's it's exactly right. There's two main paths. There's sort of academic and industry. In academia, you'd finish a PhD. You would then do a postdoctoral degree, which isn't really a degree. It's kind of a two- to three-year tour of duty where you're getting better at being a scientist. Uh, nowadays, people are doing two and three and four postdoctoral degrees. Then you're applying for assistant professorship positions or associate. I forget which is which. One of them's lower. So the intro one is a five, six-year contract of sorts. And at the end of that, basically, you're up for tenure. You have to present your case to be a permanent member of the faculty. And in some cases, you get turned down. And then your career is effectively over at that institution. Uh, and you have to go somewhere else and put your life back together. And by that point, you could be 40, 42 years old, have been in science for a long time, have a family to support and so on. Mm-hmm. So the path is really fraught with peril. And it takes someone who really, really loves science and is excellent at it and very dedicated to be successful. And on the industry side, it's a little easier because you are you're in a commercial environment where the output is a little bit clearer and you're the evaluation of your work is on a shorter time frame. But you basically go to a pharma company and you would do research for them, either basic research or more advanced kind of how, how does this drug affect people type research. How long was your graduate program? It's not a defined length. This is one right. of the weird well, things about it. how long were you in the program? <laughs> <laughs> I started in 99 and I finished in, I defended my thesis September 6, 2005. And every okay. year I kind of go take myself out for a beer and celebrate that. So it's six six years? About six years, yeah. And so undergrad, four years. Mm-hmm. So at that point you had been committed to this particular venture, to this particular track. Yeah. Going through sort of very defined established steps for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And you started it's to scary, question. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you started to question whether you wanted to continue that. Yeah, it was an interesting phenomenon in in all jobs where if you ask people at that job what you should do, that's not this job. They have no idea, right? right. So, when I went to other professors, people I respected and and I looked up to as mentors, who were not my advisor, they said, "Well, why would you want to leave?" Why would you throw your life away? What a mistake. You're, you know, everything else is a worthless pursuit of sorts. My advisor was actually great. Um, and he was like, yeah, look, you know, my job is to train you and send you off into the world. And whatever you do that's great is, is good for a society. But, yeah, it was, you know, you get kind of two-thirds of the way through and you think, oh, I don't know if I want to do this. Then there's no clear path to what you should be doing. 
there's industry, which is sort of the first thing that's offered. But then after that, it's sort of question mark. And why didn't you consider industry? Or maybe you did. And why did you decide against it? It was the same reason, I think. It was really just that I didn't feel I love discussing science. I love investigating it and researching it. I wasn't a particularly good bench scientist. Mm -hmm. So there's this concept of lab hands where some people are just kind of more naturally talented at doing science in the laboratory, and I definitely didn't have them. So I wasn't a particularly good scientist. I just enjoyed it a lot. Mm -hmm. But looking back, a lot of my cohort are doing interesting and different things. Some of them are in the pharmaceutical industry doing things like medical writing uh, or editing. Um, There's people who are science educators at smaller universities. There's people that went into intellectual property law. Um, So, I mean, if I look back on my graduate cohort, I'd say almost... Definitely more than half of them did not go on into into academia, which, you know, is sad for society, which is really kind of, as I reflect back on this in a non-personal way, we actually do need scientists in the world. <laughs> and for that career path to be as arduous as it is, is, is damaging to society. And I think that there's people, I mean, as unique as you are, the special snowflake that you are, you know, it, it, you invested an enormous amount of time, energy money in that education without ever really doing it. <laughs> right. And, and I think the big error on my part was really doing it because I enjoyed the thing I was doing in the moment and not really thinking about what the career would be afterward. You know, if I were to do it all over before starting graduate school, I'd probably go and talk to some people and go, OK, well, what happens after graduate school? What what jobs are you looking at? Like, what's that life like? What's the career like? And so on. You know, on the other hand, I would never trade any of that time for anything. It was a lot of fun. It was immensely educational. But it was educational insofar as that I had my own research project. I ran it myself. I was, you know, I reported to our advisor. But I kind of learned how to think critically during that time and be really independent. So, I mean, it was a lot of time spent in one pursuit and changing direction was was actually really hard. So... When I decided that I didn't want to do that, that's all I really had. I didn't have any clear picture of like, oh, go this way or that way. So I talked to someone that was like, okay, well, just be sure that you don't want to do this and then go from there and then start to explore and and see what else is out there. So I decided to start interviewing for jobs. And what I mean by that is I, I applied for every job that I possibly could apply to. Most of them were probably inappropriate <laughs> like, for my skills like and education. Uh, I applied to be like a quantitative trader at the Chicago Board of Trade. And they were like, tell me about you as an investor. And I was like, I don't really do that kind of stuff. <laughs> like, goodbye. Uh, I had one job interview where it was like a, like a sales job to help sell investments to your friends and family. Like uh, you become their uh, investor like your investment manager. Yeah. And and the whole job was basically taking people you knew out to dinner and, and then giving them some pitch. And after the interview, the guy was like, wait, you have a PhD. Why are you here? Like, what's, the, is this some joke or something? But I said, no, I was really interested in the job. And really what I was trying to do was to learn more about what the world was like, like what jobs are out there. And in the process, I also accidentally got really good at interviewing because I did 30 or 40 or 50 interviews where I did tell my story and practice is practice, and it's good for you. So I kind of kept at that. And one of the things I found was in talking to a friend of mine from college uh, who was an engineer and then went to go work at McKinsey, 
was McKinsey and, and management consulting. I didn't know anything about it. Um, I didn't know what it was about. And, and for some reason, they're interested in taking people with advanced professional degrees and bringing them in as management consultants. So it makes sense for them to not just hire MBAs for a couple of reasons. One is uh, diversity of opinion and thoughts. Uh, and two is, is also content expertise. So knowing a lot about Protein folding and biophysics is not useful to most businesses, but if you hire a, a lawyer or a doctor, that can be really useful. But what they do is they train you, and uh, it was a great experience there as well. What was the actual kind of work? I think a lot of people hear management consulting and don't really know what it is. Yeah, and that's a fair question. I think it's it's extremely hard to explain, mm-hmm. and I think it's a lot of different things, which is part of it. What's an example of one of the projects? So some of them are very tactical and some are more strategic. So one that was really tactical is I was working at an investment bank uh, and we were going through all of their non-compensation expenses and trying to do some just kind of sanity checking of what they're spending money on. turns out that when you start poking into an investment bank's finances, you realize that they're spending tons of money on things like black cards and trips to the Bahamas and what have you. And then... When the right people know about that, then they can start to control that. So that's on the more tactical end. Those are longer projects where you're going through, you're doing analysis of financials and creating reports and things like that on behalf of the client. So that's sort of where they either don't have the capacity or expertise to do that on their own. Some of the other stuff I did, which is more interesting, which I did later, was strategy work, which is uh, sort of a six-week type projects where you try and solve some broader problem. Like I had a client in Europe that was a microfinance investment fund. So it was like sort of they would invest money into the microfinance institutions all over the world who then would lend money to the poor. And I did a number of strategy projects for them, sort of, you know, how should we set up our operations? How should we hire people? And so what you end up giving them is sort of broad recommendations in PowerPoint form usually that are – ideally well thought through and clear and help them get going. The thing that I found frustrating, again, you know, and I didn't realize I was going to be in the same boat, was after a while that it did feel academic in a way, that I was being prescriptive about, oh, well, you know, you guys really should do this or do that, and you, you develop these really long PowerPoint presentations, and you leave them with the client, and then you don't really know what happens afterward. And that was really unsatisfying for me. And most of my time was spent in PowerPoint. I know an exceedingly, disturbingly crazy amount about PowerPoint. Um, or I did at one point. I think I've forgotten a lot of it. I've forgotten more about PowerPoint than you'll ever know. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so at this point, were you still in Michigan? So I did my graduate degree in, in Chicago. Oh, right, Chicago. So right. I, I experienced that winter, which is a special winter. Uh, and then I took the job at McKinsey in New York. So that was really just a lark where I said, well, I've lived in Chicago for a while. Why don't I try New York? I was single and unattached. And as soon as I moved there, I met my wife. So then she was in Boston in medical school. So I was sort of in New York, but mostly I was coming up to Boston a lot. I would take travel projects, which people hated. So you're, you'd leave Sunday night or Friday morning or Monday morning on the, on the plane and then fly home on, on Thursday. You live out of a suitcase effectively. But I took all those so that I could go visit my wife in Boston. Did you travel a lot of other places too? 
yeah, it, it was great for that. Um, and it's exciting at first when you get to fly business class and things like that. I flew to my microfinance client was in Switzerland, in Geneva. So I spent two summers there. I did a training in Austria. There's like a huge training facility that's there. It's like basically a mansion on a hill. It's like a ninja training facility. I went to London a bunch of times and uh, Toronto, but I guess Toronto is not as exciting. <laughs> Sorry, hey. people. Toronto. Hey, no, I grew up in Detroit, so I would go to Toronto a lot. So yeah. for me, it wasn't, it wasn't as unique. So it started to feel more academic. It did. And the clients we had were great people and, and they were in very, very large companies. And there's sort of a physics of business where once you get to a certain size, you need more and more infrastructure and processes and policies and middle management and divisions and so on. There's just all of that stuff adds up. And the larger that your company gets, the harder it is to change things or to enact real change because there are more opinions. Mm -hmm. There are more people that are dependent upon whatever it is you're doing. And changing things is really difficult. For a lot of our clients, we would show up and part of the work was interviewing the people who work there. And right away, all of those people knew what the problem was. And so most of the job in some projects was synthesizing what those people said into a clear message of, well, this, this thing is screwed up and we should change it in this way. But you would leave these recommendations and you, it wasn't clear how much that influence would actually happened. Sometimes it did, sometimes it didn't, but either way, there wasn't really a sense of knowing that. Uh, so it did feel academic. It felt like in a perfect physics world with no friction, yeah, you know, it, we should absolutely retrain our sales force to be cross-functional or something along those lines. But, you know, there's a lot of other context that's really important that makes this difficult or challenging. You know, it became kind of a, a thought exercise, and I started to approach it as a learning period. You know, some people call it McKinsey University. They spend two, three years there and learn as much as they can and go on to something else. And that's kind of what I did. I took interesting projects and I learned a lot of things about different industries that I knew nothing about. Uh, I saw the inside of some really cool places and understand that I think going into the job, I really thought business was this really intense thing that you needed to know a lot about or have experienced, you know, uh, or studied in school how to do it. But then you show up and you realize that everybody's just like you and they're all kind of trying to figure it out together as a group. And so I got really interested in that as well. Like how do people work together? How do organizations work together or things like that? But the more I did it, the more I realized, you know, again, I, I don't really want to do this as a career. It's again, it's, it's, a, it was in this sort of, it was the same situation. I looked at the career path ahead to become a partner and director and, you would stay on that plane and you're in hotels all the time and your lifestyle is continues to be bad and gets worse. You know, when I was there, I was working probably like 80 to hundred hours a week when my max was one seventeen. when I was getting close to my record. I was like, I started doing the math and saying like, Oh, I wonder how long this week is turned out to be 117 hours. Wow. But that's, that's the career. And, and it's, uh, they certainly reward you for it. And there's a lot, to be gained from it. And some of my friends who were there when I was a junior associate are now partners and love it. But, you know, it just, it wasn't again for me. So yeah, that was sort of, this is like the one-two punch moment for me where I thought, oh, well, I'm going to move into this new job and then everything will be great. And I'll know exactly what I want to do. And I'll just do that forever. And so then I never have to worry about jobs or careers ever again. But of course that wasn't true. 
So at that point, you were starting to think that you wanted to do something different. Was it obvious what you wanted to do at that point, or did you have to do a lot of searching around? No, it wasn't obvious at all. I had no idea uh, again. And, and frankly, I was frustrated that I was in this position the second time. What I did realize is that I did the first time through develop some skills on, in trying to look for the next thing. So partly it was about uh, a lot of networking interviews and, you know, kind of informational interviews where I get in touch with people or cold call them or just email them randomly and say, hey, listen, you have an interesting job. Uh, I remember when I was there, I, I emailed a VC and I was like, can I talk to you for 15 minutes? And everybody was really very friendly and very helpful. And you learn a lot about what other people's jobs are like or even what kind of jobs are available to you. So that was extremely useful. For me specifically, I ended up leaving McKinsey in 2008 because of, there was a big downturn, obviously. In the New York office, everything dried up. There was just no work. And I kind of thought, well, this is a good time to go off and do something else. So for a few years, I did the same kind of work, but selling it as an independent contractor. So I ended up working for different medical device companies and you know, startups and other businesses and kind of doing the same sort of analysis consulting work on my own. But it, again, sort of was the same. Um, still turning up PowerPoint and Excel. I got over time deeper and deeper into Excel, which is sort of, I think, what leads to the next chapter. Sort of getting into Visual Basic and, you know, access and things like that. And I realized, you know, I really like this. And I had a friend from Michigan who was working in technology and his shop was running a Rails consultancy and product shop. So I'm doing this consulting work on my own, and I've learned a lot about a lot of different things. I'm not a really an expert in anything, and I still feel like, well, what am I contributing to the world? Like, what am I doing for any of these businesses? And I was working at a small pharmaceutical consulting firm, and I ended up there again because it sort of seemed like a, a thing to do. And it, it was not a good fit. Um, I didn't enjoy the work I was doing. I realized that I didn't have any love for the pharmaceutical industry. I just didn't find it interesting. I would force myself to read the pharmaceutical periodicals in the morning, but I would get Mashable and all things D emailed to me, and I would read those first. So I just was interested in technology, and even from a young age. And But it was becoming a much more exciting, plausible world for me to work in. And then I actually got let go from that job. I was doing a bad job. And that was a big turning point in my life when I realized that to do a good job, you need to really like what you're doing. That's a really important part of work is that you have to at least enjoy the work you're doing and the people you're working with and see purpose in it all. And then that allows you and enables you to do great work. And I just was doing a terrible job and they knew it and I knew it. Was that the first time you had been let go? Yeah, yeah, it was. And it was really interesting. That first day, I really felt horrible. I felt like a real failure. And I had no idea. You know, I'd already gone through these two big changes. And then I was like, well, now what? Do I continue doing this? Or what do I do? It was scary. That first day, I was really worried. And I had no idea what was going to happen next. I was married then, and my wife was in school. So I had, you know, family responsibilities. Uh, and then the next day, I felt great. <laughs> sort of, <laughs> I was like, ah, the world is open to me again. And this thing that I really didn't enjoy doing because it was just a bad fit, I, I don't have to do that anymore. I can think about what else I want to do. So I started again. And when I made this list of, I don't know if it was childish or not, but I made a list of 
of jobs that I thought would be great. And the first one on that list was uh, screenwriter. It wasn't programmer. Was developer on the list? Developer was two. I don't remember what was after three. So I said, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take some time, maybe a month each. And I actually don't remember what else was on the list. I was going to take some time, spend a month, and I'll do an experiment, like a kind of an MVP type experiment to see if this career works for me or is interesting or I can do it. And with the knowledge that I'd be starting at the bottom. So I actually got a couple books on screenwriting and I completed a screenplay, which is terrible and I will never show anyone, but it's like an office comedy and and features consultants because it's, you know, right what you know. But I finished it and by the end of that, I realized a couple things. One was that while that was fun, I don't know that I'd be great at it and it takes a long time to be really good at that. And two was that one of the books toward the end said, oh, by the way, don't bother doing this job if you don't live in Los Angeles. And I had no plans <laughs> I had no plans to live in L.A., so it just seemed to, like that wasn't going to work. So the second thing was be a developer, uh, be a programmer. And I didn't really know what that was or how to do it. Uh, I bought a couple of books. I bought The Pickaxe. I bought Agile Development in Ruby on Rails, which is a great tutorial book. Uh, I bought Chris Pine's Learn to Program, which is excellent. And I recommend it to anybody starting out programming in any language. Uh, And those are the tools that I got going with. I started there and right away as I got, you know, did kind of Rails new and put a scaffold up and had a really basic crud thing going, the adrenaline jolt was was amazing. And I was like, oh, I love this. This is great. I want to do this. Uh, The second sort of fortuitous thing that happened was that a friend of mine in San Francisco had recently left his startup and was thinking about what the next thing was, but had wanted to learn how to be a developer in Rails. So he and I kind of formed this fake project, uh, and we started treating it like a real project. We would have project meetings once a week, and he was in San Francisco. I was in, in Boston, and you know we'd chat all day. We'd try and figure out different things. We'd try and understand what migrations were and how to make API calls and all kinds of things. And it was just a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun working with him and I had a lot of fun working within Rails, which I think is just, you know, it's just a great framework. And I'm happy that it was around and, and there was enough Stack Overflow results out there to keep me going. There's a big difference between the act of writing a screenplay and the act of building an app. There's a lot similar between those two. The, like the actual act of writing and creation. You've written a screenplay, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> um, but one is so much closer to being a real tangible thing. Right. And a screenwriter, that screenplay that you're writing is just as much a creation out of your mind, you know, but it's so far away from being an actual thing, an actual thing on a screen somewhere that the road to get from point A beginning to a working screenwriter is so long. Yeah, I can only imagine. And, I, you know, as I look back, and I've told this story a lot over the years, I, like it becomes clearer and clearer to me that that distance between creation of something, doing something, creating a, a work of some form or another, and having it work, having it have real impact or having it come to life, that distance has to be really small for me. And... You know, software is the ultimate narrow uh, feedback loop for people who need that kind of, of feedback where you, you write something and you build a feature and it's up and it's live and it's in 
the world and it's on a server and people see it and use it and you know it's it's exciting when i was an apprentice i worked at level up on the sign up flow with the the ceo and we made some very minor changes and i think it was something like you know don't send plain text passwords send like a link to confirm your password or your email but just knowing that that went out to thousands and thousands of users was exhilarating and that feeling was the confirmation that i knew that i was doing what i should be doing finally so you're working on this app with your friend. You guys are learning Ruby on Rails together. Not only just Ruby on Rails together, but development together. How long did that go for? Yeah, we were learning everything. We were learning about Git. We had no idea what con- you know version control was. or learning a lot about the command line, too. My friend was technical, but still far enough away that he couldn't answer all the questions for us. It went on for a while, and it was it was fun. I think it was really it was like a a book recommendation application, sort of social network for what now is Goodreads. Uh, it was that kind of idea. Mm-hmm. We worked on it through the latter half of 2011, and it was a lot of fun. And I decided after my one month experiment that this is great, and I want to do more of it. I committed to another six months, where I said I'm going to see how I how far I can take this after six months. So I had enough savings and I had all this planned in advance. And I said, if I can get a job in six months, then, then I'll stick with it. If not, I'll go back to you know, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, management consulting. So we built the app and, and it, I still have it and it's terrible. It's terrible to look at, but <laughs> it's all in the controller and it's just, it's just if statements galore. So we worked on that through the end of the year. And towards the end in November, December, I kind of became aware that there were people in Boston, who also were doing the same thing. And I had this long history, or at least I had experience networking and talking to people and, and just getting to know others and learning about their jobs. And that didn't scare me at all. So I just thought, okay, well, I'll just go meet some of these people and see what they're like and see what the jobs are like. So I went to, in December, I went to a Ruby meetup. It was at Boku. I remember clearly. It was at Boku Loft, and uh, Dan was talking about decorators. Dan Croak, uh, chief marketing officer. And I looked around at the room and everybody looked like the people from graduate school. You know, it's like nerdy, dorky people with goofy T-shirts and sneakers and, and hoodies. And I thought, I think I'm home. Like, I, <laughs> I think I've found my people. So at these meetups, I ended up talking to some people. I was really impressed with Dan's presentation. I didn't understand any of it. I think I didn't understand decorators for another year. But I cold emailed him and I said, hey, you don't know me from anybody, but I have this crazy background. I'm interested in doing this job. I just want to pick your brain. And thankfully, he met up for coffee and we chatted and he was like, listen, we have this crazy program where we take people in and we give them a reasonable amount of money, not a lot, but you become an apprentice and we train you and uh, we try and get your job after. What do you think? And I thought, well, this is perfect. This is exactly what I need. I felt like with the right training and guidance, I'd be able to do the job over time. But without having another person to bounce things off of, I wasn't going to be comfortable thinking that I would be successful. So I applied. How long did it take for you to hear back from us when you applied? That's a great question. Now that I'm on the other side of it, I understand how how many applications come in and how hard they are to evaluate. I must have applied sometime in December. And I met up with you and Joe, I think sometime in January. So within mm-hmm. a month, yeah. six weeks. 
you were actually, it's worth noting, very early on in the sort of second round of the apprenticeship program, where mm -hmm. the first round was we had a small batch of people who we had done apprenticeships with. It went really well, all except one decided to join ThoughtBot at the end of it. It was just a ThoughtBot thing, and it was primarily people who had come to us, and we thought that they would be great fits, but they needed some time to get up to the level that we, we wanted them to be at. So... That went really well, and we said, how can we bring this to more people? So we said, let's take a bigger group of people. Uh, we're not going to hire all of them, so let's commit to bringing other employers in and hiring them. And I think you were in that first batch of people that we did that for. Yeah, I think it was myself, yeah, Harlow Ward, uh, and Jason Draper. Mm -hmm. were sort of we, The three of us started at the same time. It was really interesting, and... It was a great, you know, I w I'm eternally thankful to both Dan and you for that opportunity because I don't know what would have happened otherwise. You know, I guess they'd fumble along and try and figure out how to be a developer. But I remember distinctly I came in for the interview and I was wearing a suit and uh, I looked around and I was like, oh, the suit was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> this was an error. Yeah. You know, I met Shauna who was, uh, has had, you know, tattoos and piercings galore. And I was like, oh, no, I need to ditch this jacket somewhere. I met with Joe and talked to him, and then I met with you. And I remember, I've, I've told you this, but uh, I don't know if you remember, but the most interesting thing that you said, which kind of threw me for a huge loop, was you sat down and we looked, at, looked at my insane resume, and we're like, well, it's clear why you would want to work here, or, mm -hmm. or why, why it would make sense for you to work here. Uh, so let, let me know more about you. Like, Tell me more about you. And mm -hmm. I was blown away. I was like, why does that make sense? Does it make sense that I should work here? Even I wasn't sure of that, and I, I didn't really get where I should be. You know, I'm still, after all these years, have gone through so many different transitions that none of it seemed like, okay, this is the thing that I should be doing forever. Mm -hmm. I was happy writing software and having fun, but the job part of it, I didn't really get. But that was really, that was awesome. From my perspective, there's two, there's two sides to it, and they're the two, same two sides that we look at when evaluating people, is you had written an application, it was real code that we could evaluate. And, it, and even though you, looking back now, you think it was terrible, it definitely showed us the potential that you had to create the level of code that we look for and expect because you had taught it to yourself over the period of whatever it was, six months or yeah, and looking back, I realized that's what we should all be looking for is that ability to push through difficult problems on your own and come to... Mm -hmm. to some solutions and and so that's what we look for you know as we evaluate applications here in san francisco and you you do as well like those are the things that i look for as i talk to people how how do they fight through different problems and how do they get to the end and then your experience of you know that we've talked about today the <laughs> the the science the consulting management and the reasons why you didn't like those mm -hmm. are all, you know, the consulting we do, the product development that we do, the development that we do is tapping into all of the things you liked about those previous jobs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's, it's exactly so much correct. more tangible in terms of the creation and the impact side of things. Yeah. So if you look at the science piece, what we do all day is run experiments on what a user might enjoy having in their application you know it's it's part of the product design process and there's a scientific method underneath all of that there's hypotheses there's assumptions 
and there's testing of those hypotheses. And whenever I talk about what we do to other people, I describe it as a scientific method. And that's exciting. And there's data to work with. And then from the management consulting end of things, I really always enjoyed working with a number of different clients and seeing different people's problems and trying to help them out as much as I could. And in this job, we do that, but we actually write code and ship it for people. So it's so tangible that you've made something and sent it and you've shared it and it works. And it's demonstrably working that that tangibility is really important. I realize for me and my personality. So in the apprenticeship, and for the apprenticeship is a three-month structured program where you work with a mentor. You, know, you, you have a different mentor and different project team each month. You're working on real work, but we're not billing your time. What was that like for you? What were some of the – were there challenges that you had to overcome? Yeah. I mean the, the biggest one is, is imposter syndrome. And you know, I could go on – any number of us in this industry could go on about that for a long time. I, you know, I just thought from day one this was a mistake. And uh, as soon as someone figures out that I am not going to be able to do this job, they'll you know kick me out. So I, from day one I thought, okay, I'm just going to squeeze as much out of this experience as I can. Dan Croak was my first mentor, and we went over to Level Up. And so I was working out of their offices and got to see what an inside of a startup was like. That was growing really rapidly with a great CEO who's really energetic, moving in a lot of different directions, but also trying to maintain vision. Um, it was just great. It was great to work with them and to work closely with Dan. You get the sense of what the flow is like to build things and put them out into production. And you get the sense of what's good and what's not good. And that's really important. And that discussion of why is really is my favorite part. Why do you compose over inheriting things why is that a preferred way of doing things and there's a lot of reasons why and i really got into that and i really enjoyed those discussions and learning more about that um the challenge was just not having had any experience at all i just didn't have a vocabulary to speak of my second mentor was gabe burke williams and i remember distinctly at some point i asked him for feedback at the end and he was like you keep calling classes models they're not all models some classes are models but not all models they're not all active record models. So mm -hmm. there were things that just weren't obvious to me. I didn't have a computer science degree and I was spending my evenings looking things up. I would basically, I had a notebook where I'd write down things I didn't understand during the day and I would look them up at night. So I was just playing catch up the entire time. And, and then John was my mentor, uh, John Urich, uh, the third month. And I'm thankful to all three of them. They were great teachers and great people to learn from. So you already said earlier on that if you had to do the graduate school and the science thing over again, you wouldn't change a thing. Is there something you would do differently or some advice if you could go back in time and give to yourself that you would give? Yeah, I, th I think I would probably run these career experiments way earlier. I think that graduate school is a lot of fun and, and it's hard to look back on a really formative part of your life and say, oh, I wish I didn't do that. Right. But – I think looking back, I probably would have tried to look at what the job was like way earlier. You know, when you're in training in, in academia, you're just working on your project and you're trying to solve whatever scientific problem or try to understand something at, at a deeper level. At the time when I started, I was making something like, you know, we had a, we had a government stipend. I was making $16,000 a year. So that was before taxes. And so, you know, you have no money and most of your time is focused on trying to make your rent and find entertainment that was affordable. 
you don't really think like, oh, after this, I need to get another job or one day I'm going to have kids and how do I support them? And I think looking back, the advice I'd give myself is to look more carefully at what the career was further on down the line and talk to some of those people earlier. And then I probably would have made the same, I don't know what decisions I would have made, but I would have made them sooner. So in the same way that our software development cycles get shorter and shorter and allow us to be a lot more agile and move in different directions. I think you could do something similar in careers. Not exactly, but I think you can make that feedback loop shorter and then you can move in a better direction faster. So you started doing development in 2011, really. You joined us in 2012. So it's been a little over three years now, almost maybe almost four years. Time flies. Are you ready to move on to something else now? <laughs> I think it's a valid question. No, I, definitely not. You know, when I was a kid, I had a, in the 80s, we had an IBM AT, and it had a 20 megabyte hard drive and a floppy disk, and we had a modem and all this stuff. And since then, I've really been enamored with computers and technology. And to me, it's just always been there in the background, but I'd never, I'd never have tried to pursue it as a job. I was talking to Gordon about this and he said, like, I just didn't understand what that job was like. I just thought it was like office space. Uh, and I think I was in the same boat. I don't see myself working outside of technology yet. It's a lot of fun. It's super gratifying. And it brings together a lot of really smart people who are also a lot of fun. And, you know, it, it's it's great. And working at, at ThoughtBot is a joy. And even working within the technology industry generally, you go and see other people at other companies is is phenomenal. And one of the best parts about that is the open source community and feeling like that there's a lot of things that we depend on, which we all contribute to. And not to be too, too San Francisco hippie about it, but it's just, it feels good. It, there's a good vibe to it when people create things and put it out in the world. It just feels like the right kind of community. It aligns with the values that I have and, and it feels like the place that I want to be for a long time. Really frustratingly, when I became a developer, my mom told me that I should have done this from the beginning, she's like, oh, I told you in college that you should have done this. And that's absolutely not true. Sorry, Mom. <laughs> Is it possible you just don't remember? Could be. But, you know, it's college. So, Adish, thank you for talking to me today. Again, if people want to hear more people's stories about switching careers, starting over, doing new things, you have a new podcast. It's at RebootShow.fm and... Search for Reboot on iTunes. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, and the stories are really interesting. And a lot of them are sort of, you know, people just have, they hit these walls and they have no idea where to go, and sometimes they end up in really interesting places. So it's, luckily, uh, one of the selling points is you don't hear much of me. You hear a lot of the other people. So the first episode is with Gordon, who's the one of the co-hosts of our other podcast. Oh, boy, this is a big incestuous ThoughtBot podcast. <laughs> it's a crossover. So it's cross. yes. Um Gordon, who's an iOS developer, episode one of Reboot. And Gordon, before being an iOS developer, dropped out of college, was a bartender, film editor, and joined us as an iOS developer. Yeah, it was great to talk to him because we, we both had the same feelings when we, we both got hired. Where It was like for the first six months, we just expected to get fired and found out at any moment. And... A lot of us talk about imposter syndrome and hearing about it is really important for younger developers to know working hard is really important, but no one's going to just kind of up and fire you for no reason uh, if you're working hard. Uh, it's a great story and there's a lot of vivid moments in it too. Well, great. So check it out and thanks again. 
Thanks a lot, Chad. This was awesome. Show notes for this episode can be found at giantrobots.fm slash 125. That's 125. This episode was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. See you next time.